Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to a brand new Arseblog Arsecast right here on Arseblog.com. How are you? I hope you're well. Thank you very much indeed, as always, for being here. It is, of course, the first Arsecast of 2024. How are you holding up so far? Things okay? Keeping those New Year's resolutions on track, I hope. I certainly am. I sat down on January 1st. I made my strongest, strictest, most determined New Year's resolution of all time. And so far, so good. I have resisted the temptation of eating an entire jar of cloves. I have resolved to not eat an entire jar of cloves in 2024 or any other year. And I feel like this is one that I'm going to be able to uh, to see all the way through to the end. You know, But I hope yours, which might be more beneficial to you and your life and your lifestyle are going okay. Those of you who are busy hitting the gym over the next week or so, or maybe a couple of weeks or three weeks, listen, by May, you might have some slight regret, some shame about paying the gym fee up front for 12 months as a kind of motivating factor to to make you go. If I pay it all in one go rather than monthly, I will go. I won't waste that money. It's okay. Don't stress. There are bigger things to be worried about, of course, after the way we played against Fulham, a a game which seems to have delivered something of a a hammer blow to the psyche of many Arsenal fans, which I understand. It was terrible and very, very bad and awful and all those things. But I have seen it take the wind out of people's sails, so to speak, you know, from comments we have on the website and discussions you see people having online the the reaction to that performance was was really quite something so let's hope we can get wind back in our sails for this weekend when we have the uh well the simple task of beating liverpool in the fa cup i don't know i have this thing about liverpool in the fa cup that that i i could be completely wrong about this but i feel like when we beat them in the early rounds of the fa cup we usually go on and win it That's probably nonsense, but that's what it feels like. So I'm hoping that if we do win this weekend, it will be a good omen. And then, of course, there is, you know, a couple of weeks for the players to get rested, recharged, refire those batteries and get ready for our Premier League game against Crystal Palace on the 20th of January. For today's show, though, because it's been a pretty quiet week normally happens after a bad result. You know, there's kind of media lockdown and there hasn't been much in the way of transfer rumor worth talking about or certainly uh, not ones that people want to spend too much time giving consideration to because it's mostly stories about like how we're not going to buy anyone. So we're doing a statements podcast today. And if you don't know the format, basically, I will uh, read out statements which have been provided to us by our 
our wonderful Patreon members, and I will read out those statements, and my guest has to either strongly agree, agree, disagree, or strongly disagree with those statements, and then we can use those as a kind of uh, platform for discussion or debate or whatever it might be. So we might as well just get on with the show. And with me to do that, you'll know him as the host of the Arsenal Vision podcast. It's Elliot Smith. Elliot, hello to you and Happy New Year. Yeah, Happy New Year, Andrew. Good to see you. And you? Um, I I appreciate that when you're like, oh, I'm going to be doing my hot takey episode, so I got to go get the hot take guy. So thanks, well, thanks that's, for having me in the rotation for that. No problem. You're the first guy I thought of for this. So just to <laughs> remind you, I've already reminded the listeners, I'm going to give you statements. And you can either strongly agree, agree, disagree, or strongly disagree with them. No fence sitting, which I know is your speciality, of course, but will uh, push you out of your comfort zone today. Let's start with something that's relatively current And Tater Murray says, people are overreacting to the Fulham loss and performance. I do love a good Tater. Um, I would say strongly agree. I, I think that there are things in the Fulham performance that are worth teasing out. I think there are attacking issues that are worth discussing. I think there are things that have been potential problems for us this season that we've seen pop up more than just in the Fulham game. But I think that performance is an aberration. And I think if you look around at the teams that have had Champions League football this season in particular, and you look at how they finished the holiday program, they all look like they were out of gas. Newcastle got absolutely smoked by Liverpool, who importantly didn't have Champions League. Arsenal looked totally out of gas to me in our performance with Fulham, where we lost all our duels and didn't press effectively and weren't beating anyone off the dribble. Manchester United are just bad, so it's hard to evaluate them. Mm. And, you know, Manchester City have been fine, but I don't think at their effervescent best. But also recall, they're coming back from that World Club Cup Championship Mm -hmm. Trophy of the World thing where they got to rotate a bit and probably weren't as pushed had they been in the regular flow of Premier League football. So I think... It, it is the end of a very taxing period. Last season, we built our good season on an early season run that featured Europa League group stage where we did rotate quite a bit. That's where Liverpool find themselves this season. And I think not all, but some of the difference could boil down to a little bit of that. Well, do you have any theory on why this particular performance and result seems to have, uh, I, in the little bit of intro I did before this, I said it's delivered like a hammer blow to the psyche of many Arsenal fans, which is perhaps over-egging the pudding a little bit. But, you know, certainly... It's been a long time since Arsenal have played anywhere near that badly, in my opinion, Mm. anyway. You've got to go back to find a performance like that. And, you know, to to some extent, that obviously gives you a bit of, of comfort because it's unusual. It's not the usual. It's certainly something we've experienced in the past, but it's not something that we've been dealing with in, in the, the recent past, for example. So any I, any theories as to why is this like just such a, a painful old wound that's been scabbed off? Yeah, well, first of all, I mean, it doesn't help that we lost the game before at home to West Ham. Well, right? true. And they're yeah. very different performances, but I, I think it's also the emotional distance we've traveled. We were top at Christmas, and I think if you polled Arsenal supporters at that time on what we could do this season, there would have been a lot of optimism around the title. So to go from that to where we find ourselves after two losses is difficult. And I know people don't always love data, but I think data sometimes just expresses in numbers what we're feeling in emotions or what our eyes see, and that is that according to, I think it's Opta Analyst or something like that, we lost around 23% likelihood of winning the title 
from Christmas to now based on those two results. So the odds and the betting odds and all that is telling us what our heart is telling us, which is these were crushing defeats. And here's the problem with crushing defeats. Because they are crushing, it's hard to analyze them with a clear eye, I think. And so some of the analysis around how we're playing is almost certainly going to be impacted by the very rightful feeling that the title is now mm. deeply in jeopardy as a result of those those two outcomes. All right, good theory. Could well be that. So um, we'll see. And look, things fluctuate very quickly in football. You win a couple of games and things start to look a bit rosier in the garden. So here's one. Um, which I think was quite fun if I could find it. Yes, it comes from Joey H94, who says, last season's Arsenal would beat this season's Arsenal. Ooh, that is a fantastic question. Mm. I would say disagree. Ooh, that's interesting. I thought so, you were gonna. I thought you were gonna agree with this, and if you know someone had made me say, would it be agree or strongly? I would have urged towards strongly. So tell me why. Well, first of all, and I think that this is something that's broken our brains a little bit. There wasn't just one Arsenal last season, right? Are we get Are we getting to play the Rob Holding Arsenal? <laughs> you know, are we getting to play the No Gabriel Jesus? Like Arsenal last season was a bit of a roller coaster in terms of when we were great. Mm. I haven't seen an Arsenal play that way maybe ever. You know, the, the absolute peak of the early 2000s, but not much outside of that. But we weren't that for that much of the season. We accumulated points at a good rate, but I think after the World Cup, we started to see the drop-off, even though we were getting points, and then obviously injuries took its toll. I think this Arsenal against last season's Arsenal, I think last season's Arsenal would struggle to create chances against this season's Arsenal. I think we're better at having the ball, I think we're better at controlling games. I think we're better at suppressing chances. What both teams have a bit in common is we chuck a few in our net, stupidly. That derailed our season last season when we mm. lost Saliba. It's happening this season. The biggest difference, if you want to say, would last season's Arsenal beat this season's, is just the form of the front three, right? So it, the irony is everything tells me right now that the only major difference in how we're playing this season, last season, is our front three is not firing. Some people would say it's we're too slow, we're too ponderous, we're doing things differently. But if I look at it and I look at the shots we're taking and the positions we're taking them in and the amount of control we have, Saka's not finishing, Jesus is not finishing, and Martinelli very much is not finishing anywhere near the rate we did last season. I think we are a more dominant team this season that does, has been very poor in front of goal. Yeah, very, I mean, very poor in front of goal. I agree with that. I, I just think this is a really interesting one. I, in my mind, when I was looking at this one, it was like, would the best version of last season's Arsenal beat the best version of this season's Arsenal? And I think it would. Mm. I think well, it would. And I can see all the things that you're saying about the way we're playing and we give up fewer chances, albeit we've gone off a cliff a little bit defensively at the moment. I just think that that pre-World Cup version of Arsenal, if we could have kept that going all the way through the season, was probably a title-winning uh, team. Whereas I don't know that the best we've seen from this uh, this season's team has really shown enough to be considered in that in that regard. Most people are probably going to agree with you, honestly. And But I, obviously, and look, they had more points, they had more goals, they had a better goal difference at this stage. Like, of course, I, I think... Look, we did play there, – there are really two great teams in the Premier League this season other than us. Everyone else is a mix and match, and that's Liverpool and City. We played them both. Our performance at Anfield this season was much better than last season, although admittedly, look at the team we took to Anfield last season, so caveats mm -hmm. in place. I think our home performance against City was better this season. 
more controlled, a, a very tactical game that we, you know, just about won with a deflection. I get it, but I think it was better. So I think at the very top level, you know, when we played those two teams, I think we look better. In in their absolute flowing best, last season's Arsenal were excellent. But I think people forget post-World Cup, I don't think we ever hit that level again. I really don't. I think we found pockets of form but never hit it. So you're comparing this season's Arsenal to, I think, part of last season's Arsenal, which is fair. But I don't know. I, I like a lot of the things about the way we're playing. I, I, I hate – I don't want to come across as a Pollyanna – but if you think back just two games to where we were at Christmas, top at Christmas and the kind of football we were playing mm. and breezing through our Champions League group, by the way, where we look, we've we looked excellent. I, I don't know. I think this team might have even just a little more control than last season. Right. Okay. Well, we'll have to uh, agree to disagree on that particular one. That's the whole point here. Y- yeah, exactly. <laughs> you mentioned stats and certainly um, the game is analyzed in a very uh, minute fashion these days. This is fairly basic. Photonic Cannon says the lack of open play goals is an overstated problem. Is a Photonic Cannon very basic? Because I, uh, I no, I mean, I mean, I, I figured the um, open play goals statistic was fairly basic. You know, okay. This and, and many, is Photonic is, Cannon saying it's overstated. He says the lack of open play goals is an overstated problem. I will strongly disagree with that. <clears throat> um. And you can look where you want for where that deficiency comes from. Um, you could, it depends on your worldview. You could say we don't create enough from open play, or you could say that we don't finish enough of what we create from open play. And I think both of those arguments have merit. But if you look at it, you want to hear a somewhat depressing list, or are you not in the mood for that? Sure, why not? It's a <laughs> Thursday in fucking January. What better time to hear a depressing list? Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> let's go to just open play goals um, this season in the Premier League and just look at the teams that are above us in open play goals in the Premier League. City, Liverpool, Spurs, Brighton, Villa, Newcastle, West Ham, Bournemouth, Chelsea, Forest, Fulham, Wolves. All of those teams have more open play goals than we do. Mm. And the reason I don't think that that is something not to worry about, because you say, well, penalties count and set pieces count, and they certainly do. And set pieces are actually a great reference point for how well you're being coached, I think, to some extent, right? But the reason I think it's a problem is ultimately, I think it's a reflection of how effective your attacking football is. For all the dominance we have, how come our open play is not producing more goals? But here's why I think you can just point to the form of our front three. And everybody's going to roll their eyes out of their head when I mention XG, but let's just do it for a second. Sure. Okay? From open play XG, we are just two expected goals behind City from open play. And we are 13 behind them in goals. So, if, yeah, sorry, yeah, go, no, no, I was going to ask you, does that give you a, <laughs> does that sort of give you a sense of a little bit of optimism that when it does click in that the fundamentals are kind of there in terms of the framework, it's about applying those finishes you know, it's a bit of both. I, I look. I definitely think that our attack has been too comfortable getting into wide positions, isolating Saka two and three v one, isolating Martinelli, not finding combination play. I think that improved when Jesus came back. If you really look at it, um, not with the blinders of the last two performances, or in particular the Fulham performance. I think that has improved. Um, but I mean, the funny thing is, Andrew, if we just finished our open play chances, 
at expected level, right? Just expected level, not outperform them, just mm-hmm. at expected level. We would be tied with Liverpool for goals scored this season. So, uh, you know, it's it's unsatisfying to say, no, attackers just haven't taken their chances. That's unsatisfying. People want a tactical change or a transfer market change or a sub a substitution change that'll fix it. But let's be honest, your eyes tell you this. You know, last season, that Martinelli chance from the center of the box against Fulham sure. goes inside the post. The Saka chance, right? The volley that mm-hmm. he blasts over last season, that goes in the back of the net. And suddenly, you know, you win 3-2 and everyone's going, oh, the hallmark of a good team is winning ugly, right? I mean, for all Liverpool created against Newcastle, and I've never seen anything like it, they got pegged back in that game at one point, and they needed a penalty to get back out in front. Uh, you know, a questionable penalty where Jota threw himself to the ground theatrically. So no one wants to hear, oh, just finish your chances, we'll be fine. But there's at least some of that in my mind. Okay, I would agree with you with that one. The lack of open play goals is a problem. And I think what what open play goals give you is a kind of momentum and confidence as well. You know, leaving aside the statistical look at things, just how you feel as a a, a group of players, as individuals. If Martinelli scores two, three, four goals from open play, I think we see a different Gabriel Martinelli for the rest of the Mm -hmm. season. Same with Bukayo Saka. Uh, same with Gabriel Jesus, you know. So I think those those uh, chances, um, however way you want to analyze why we're not taking them, uh, need to start being taken because I do think that uh, you know you you can't win a lot of games uh, just with with set pieces, you know. No, and by the way, it it changes not just the players' confidence, but it changes game state, right? Sure, Having a yeah, lead that's versus a... a team being able to bunker and protect. A yeah, lead. Um, I mean, I, I think yeah. there is, you know, maybe something. That can be at times over, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like the game state against Fulham was perfect for yeah, us we, when we, we went 1-0 yeah. up, you know? Uh, so it doesn't always work out, but I do work. know what you mean, yeah. But, but you know, like the Villa game is a great example too, though, for the people that are like, we're too slow, we're too ponderous, we don't, you know, we don't attack at, at speed or direct. Villa is a great example of like, I thought we did everything we're supposed to do. We broke their high line, we got in behind them time and time again. I can't explain why we didn't make the right pass or finish the chance or make the right last pass. You know, I I watched Liverpool get in where Salah played a beautiful pass between center back and defender to Jota. Mm-hmm. And Jota doesn't slam it at the keeper from a tight angle. He cuts it back to Curtis Jones, who taps it in for a goal. And I just feel like that last extra pass or that last smart decision, like the Villa game, we attacked at pace. We were direct. We got him behind their line mm-hmm. and still contrived not to execute. And I... I, you know, I, I can't help but feel these players were playing better in the attacking third last season through and not for any particular tactical reason I can explain. So uh, on, on the same sort of thing, Fabregasted says one of Martinelli, uh, Saka and or Jesus will strike a rich vein of form soon. And like a domino effect, the rest of the players' forms will begin to thrive, thus solving the goal drought and allowing us to win the league without any major additions. Okay, if you hadn't put the coda on the I end know, of that, gonna, I would gonna, strongly agree with you. He's gone a long uh, way I, with that one, in fairness. <laughs> I'm going to strongly agree with three-quarters of it and disagree with the last piece. Um, I think it is, look, we're five points back of Liverpool. That's not the end of the world. We're going to be behind City by the time they play their game in hand. It's not the end of the world. We can still win the league. I think we are outsiders now. It's just the reality based on the position we put ourselves in. But I strongly agree that one or more of these players is going to find some better form than they've been in. I think they're shagged out. I think this 20 days off from the Premier League will help. I think a little warm weather will help. 
Um, I think that it's a chance for Mikel to work on some things on the training ground, which mm -hmm. everything in my mind says we've been good at. If you look at our preseasons, we keep coming back in preseasons looking like we've evolved and innovated. There's a chance we get some players back. Maybe we even add a player in the window. But I do think, as you can probably tell from my previous answers, that these players have more in them than we're seeing from them. And and it, ha it has to be, right? Because you look at City and they have Holland and you look at Liverpool and they have Salah. And like, if we want to believe that Martinelli and Saka, you know, can ascend to those kinds of levels and certainly Saka, th there's more to these players. We are, there's no way you can convince me this is just who they are this season. After last season, doing what they did. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. Know? So I think, I think it will happen, yes. Yeah, I think one of the things around, particularly the discussion of, of Saka and Martinelli, is that they obviously improved massively last season in terms of their output. And very few players improve and then continue. There's like an improvement, there's a plateau. There's an improvement, then there's something of a plateau. And I do think that might be part of, of what is happening. You know, we're all looking for explanations as to why these guys aren't scoring goals the way they did last season. But it's not unusual for a young player, 22 years of age, to not quite hit a wall, but but certainly to sort of get to a level, stay there for a little while, and then kick on again. And I do wonder if that might be part of what is going on. But I do think there are other explanations in terms of how the team is is set up and everything else. We've got a couple like this. They're not quite the same. So maybe you can uh, try and remember both of them. But ATX Bergkamp Lover 6969420 says... <laughs> Arsenal would be top of the table if Jury and Timber had missed less than three games. And Jmart91 says, our technical reliance on Zinchenko was planned to be slowly phased out this season and the plans were halted by the injury to Jury and Timber. I'll go ahead and strongly agree, although I'm on the fence between agree and strongly agree. The phased out language, I'm not sure. I mean, what's funny about Zinchenko is everyone seems to see how he's a liability. And then the games he doesn't play, everyone says it was a Zinchenko game, right? So he didn't play against Luton and everyone was like, well, Luton kind of felt like a Zinchenko game though. And then he doesn't play against Fulham and we have our worst performance of the season. And the guy we started at left back has to be subbed at halftime. Um, and Tomiyasu comes in and we wind up with like three shots to end the game or something. Like, so phased out might be too strong a language, but what I definitely believe is you get diminishing returns from a player like Zinchenko if he has to play every game every week. That I, is a hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. There's just no way he's built for that. And that is a deficiency of his, but it's one that we have to manage. Um, I think Timber being available, I, the whole, would we be top of the league? I mean, we could have been top of the league anyway, just do the job against West Ham when we had 30 some odd shots and should have beaten them and do the job against Fulham or don't drop points to Fulham at home when you have a lead and a man advantage. Like, mm. We don't need Timber to have corrected the things that have screwed us up this season, ironically, right? We've been the masters of our own downfall in some respect. Not that we're, we've had a downfall, but you know. Sure, sure. Challenges. I know what you mean. Um, so I would say, yes, if we had Timber, we'd have more options. We could play Zinchenko less. We could, if you want to use the phase out language, you could, but we could do a lot of different things in games without losing the critical components of what Zinchenko gives us. I, I do think that would have made a big difference. Yeah. So yes to both, whether I strongly agree with the phase out language would be my only bone to pick. I would agree with the first one. I think if he was there, we'd just, you know, there'd be a bit more fuel in the tank, if you if you know what I mean, when it comes to this point of the season. The phasing out thing, I'm going to disagree with that because I don't know that we, like, we can't know 
what the plan was. Like Thomas Partey started the season at right back. That's not really a tactical revolution thing. That was a that was a different thing because of what was going on with Gabriel and Saudi Arabia, and um, you know it was dressed up as a tactical explanation in order to just sort of obscure other things, right? So that meant that with Zinchenko injured, uh, you know Timber was Timber was a good. Uh, a good candidate for the left-hand side. Nobody thought that he was going to play there. Nobody thought he was going to play left-back at all when he, he signed. Right so, back. yeah, he came as a right-back. He came as a centre-half. So mm-hmm. that's why I'm going to disagree with that, that the uh, phasing out of Zinchenko is is tied to Timber because it might well have been a case that if Timber was fit all season, he could have been playing he could have been playing right back. And, you know, yeah. if Ben White has been playing with a bit of an injury, who knows, you know? So uh, I can't really uh, agree with that one. Okay, here is uh, another one. Let me see if I can find it. Okay, just moving away from Arsenal a little bit here. This one comes from Taliman, who says, VAR can be made to work consistently and accurately. I strongly agree with that. Um, depending on what your range for accuracy is. I think the idea of 100% satisfaction with every call is, is not possible. Um, and you only have to look at Arsenal's game against Liverpool where that handball wasn't given, where I think even a lot of Arsenal fans would say that's probably a handball. By the same token, I don't want that to be a penalty kick because that that feels like too much punishment for the crime. It's a case where the laws are a bit gray and everybody disagrees on everything and VAR can't fix that. I do think VAR can be better. I think it can be more automated. I think it can happen quicker. I think you can get better people in the in the minivan or wherever they are making these decisions. <laughs> um, I think they can stop worrying about protecting their mate out on the pitch. I think the clear and obvious error standard is a nonsense. A great example being the Jota penalty the other night. Mm-hmm. Jota dived. That oh, much 100%. 100%. Called, yeah. 100%. It's called a penalty on the pitch, though. And then VAR looks and says, well, technically there's contact, so we can't say it's a clear and obvious error. Mate, <laughs> it's a clear, it's not a penalty. I get that there was some contact, but contact isn't necessarily a penalty. And that's an area where I think VAR is sort of hamstrung by the current standard. I just think PGMLL for me does not, I know this is such a cliche, but they don't feel fit for purpose for me. I think there needs to be a massive overhaul. It surprises me the Premier League hasn't taken it over, professionalized it, and like, really made changes. Now, I, I well, confess I, mean, I don't understand how that would impact football in the UK and, you know, at the grassroots level. And I know that it's difficult to get grassroots referees in because mm-hmm. of the abuse they get. And there are cultural issues around abusing referees. None of that is right. But simply saying don't abuse referees, that's not right, is not an excuse for not having better referees and better refereeing standard in the Premier League. Those two things are not uh, mutually exclusive. No, I mean, they are, I mean, professional. They are professional referees now. That is, you know, part and parcel of what PGMOL, uh, PGMOL is. I mean, I agree with you that I agree that VAR can be made to work consistently and accurately, but there is s- such subjectivity to so many of the rules in football or the decision-making processes in football that it leads to uh, some of the frustration that we've seen. Some of it, though, is just down to people not being good enough at their jobs. And this is where I feel yeah. like the, the sort of gatekeeping of refereeing discussion or discussion of, of refereeing quality is really, really unhelpful. There are sections of the media running campaigns, don't abuse referees, and what happens is legitimate discussion and leg- legitimate debate gets thrown in with that. Look, go on Twitter if you want. I very rarely do anymore, and it's great. 
Um, but, you know, go on there and you'll find all sorts of people saying all sorts of things about referees and decisions, you know, most of which are completely indefensible. But if you have a reasoned, um, logical, sensible, constructive discussion about refereeing standards, then it can only be helpful for refereeing in general. And this idea that, well, you're going to put people off if, um, you know, you criticize referees too much or if they're in the spotlight too much or if they're held accountable or, or if there is too much scrutiny for them. But surely, if you do that, what it will become potentially is a more attractive job for the people who are really, really good at it. Yes. Because there's a pathway then for you to make the breakthrough. I don't know how you would say it, but like to progress from being a grassroots referee and working your way up and maybe being a Premier League referee and maybe going to referee at a World Cup and all those things. Because there is a a um, a process or how would you call it? Like, you know, when you do your end of year, if you're the boss, you do your end of year employee assessments, right? Mm -hmm. John is fucking well done, John. You've been an A plus guy this year. Elliot, sorry, you've been bunking off too much, blah, blah, blah. You're not wrong. You, you know, you're not, you're only getting 1% of your bonus, whatever it might be, you know, maybe, you know, those things are in place across all kinds of businesses. And I do think that with refereeing and with officiating, the, the legitimate discussion is is shut down, and I don't know, I have to say, I don't know that having referees as kind of co-commentators on Sky Sports and things like that is particularly helpful in that regard either, because all they tend to do is um, back up the things which frustrate people, as you said, the Jada penalty, like, wouldn't all of football, apart from maybe Liverpool fans, have said, that's that's kind of what we want to see. Yes, there was a little bit a bit of contact, but is that enough to make a player fall down two or three steps later? No. So, you know, the game is better for that, I think. So so two things. First, I, I wanna I wanna differentiate between VAR and the refereeing. And I think there's one thing that's really wrong about how we talk about VAR. VAR isn't a thing. VAR isn't a thing. VAR VAR doesn't do anything. The the but referee VAR who looks people, at the video yeah, yeah, does, yeah, yeah. sure right and and so better people will make VAR better. I think the standards can be better. All of that. I mean, I know the laws of the game create some challenges because some of them are, are gray areas, and I understand that. But a few things like nobody bats an eye if you say, "Oh, the players on that team are bad," but people somehow think referees can't be bad. Like, what if the talent level is just too low? Like, do we think the nineteen Premier League referees are the best nineteen referees in world football? I don't think anybody thinks that. Are they 19 of the best 20? Are they 19 of the best 40? Are they 19 of the best 100? I just think there's got to be a deeper pool of talent that can be brought in. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you look at the Premier League, what has it done? It's consolidated as much talent as possible in these teams because they have so much money and not done the same thing in the refereeing group. So that's part of it. I think the other thing with VAR, though, Andrew, like, think about this for a second. Let's say I'm a referee. I make a terrible call for a penalty that's clearly never a penalty. Clearly. And VAR doesn't overrule me. Now I'm the center of attention. Now I'm going to get abuse. Now I'm in the spotlight. If VAR just corrects it, it helps me. It takes the pressure off me by, I, I missed it. I didn't see it right. VAR fixed it. Now no one's talking about me and my terrible call. Sure. But because of the, the silly way that VAR feels like they have to protect their mates on the pitch or clear and obvious, you wind up with that Jota penalty standing and then the referee's under immense scrutiny for having given it. I just think 
the people who have put the program together have put it together wrongly. I think if you elevate the talent and improve the way it's administered, to the to answer the question that initiated this, yes, I think a more accurate, more satisfying, quicker, better VAR is possible. And as a final point, I will simply say this because I acknowledge this. I don't go to games often, but I do go. When you go to the games, VAR is a very unsettling experience. Yes. And for the match-going fan, I, I cannot be mad at any match-going supporter who hates VAR because I acknowledge that it take the, the most joyful thing that happens in football is your team scoring a goal, and it has neutered that to some extent in the ground. I agree. No yeah, I was at the Sheffield United game this season, and I think three, maybe at least three of the goals were subject to VAR checks. And we were all just well. sitting there going, well, I, I know there's a VAR check, but I've got no idea what it what it's about, what it's for, or anything like it. Um, and that whole thing about, well, you get to celebrate twice. No, that doesn't really... That doesn't really do it for me. Seeing as we're on I this- I believe we ate giant pizzas after that game, if I remember correctly. <laughs> right. Was it pizzas or Italian? I can't remember. I can't it's remember. All, it's all hazy. It's it a lot of very hazy, all right. <laughs> uh, Jedders90 says, Jurgen Klopp's touchline antics are deplorable, and Arteta is punished unfairly for his. Strongly dis- uh, Oh, um, <laughs> This is another. I strongly agree. Strongly disagree and strongly agree. Um I strongly disagree that Jurgen Klopp's are deplorable, and I strongly agree that Mikel's unfairly punished for his. Like, what are we doing here? The pantomime, the drama, the excitement. Like, we all loved Arsene Wenger bodying Mourinho on the touchline. We all love this stuff. Mourinho knee sliding in a suit. Like, it's all part of the the pantomime that is elite sport. And let's face it, none of this matters. None of this is life or death. This is entertainment. And these antics make it more entertaining. And uh, I... The thing that I can hear ringing in my ears, won't someone think of the children, but what about the children? Like, you know, th they're watching things on TikTok that are worse, I promise you. <laughs> you know, go, go check their browser history. My kids, would, have, my kids have been copying stuff like since Kingdom Come, you know? That's just what happens in the worse. playground. Yeah, yeah. It used to be worse. I mean, you know, like, in all right, so in the, you know, we don't have to go to, all the way back to hooliganism, but obviously there were, there were worse things in football than Jurgen Klopp making faces or Arteta being out of his technical area. I think this is the kind of stuff that TalkSport loves to get up in arms about. And I think it's a huge mistake to clamp down on this. I think football has a politeness obsession. I remember you used to get outraged about this, um, Andrew, back when uh, Sesk spat. And it was regarded as worse. All the pundits were on TV saying, I'd rather have my ankle broken yeah, yeah, know, yeah, than yeah, get yeah. spat on. And I remember how upset you got about that. And yeah, it's just and he, there's been he spat obsession. on the ground, by the way, not yeah. not on someone. So right, yeah, it's just it's there's an obsession with politeness that doesn't make any sense. And the sooner we accept that this is all a big drama that's playing out in front of us and and embrace it and enjoy it, the better, you know. Yeah, I agree with that. I think I saw Pep Guardiola got his fourth yellow card of the season the other day. Like Marco Silva's had a load of yellow cards. Arteta's had yellow cards. I'm sure Klopp has had yellow cards. What is it doing? What do they want managers to do on the sidelines? Like you, you've got one of the most high-pressure jobs in football, and I think Arteta's all, you know, almost always really good on this in that he talks about, you know, wanting to live the game and how his players, he wants his players to live the game and how he wants the fans to live the game and understand and experience the emotion of what football can give you. So why should a manager be distinct from that? stand there with, you know, in a top hat and just look on, uh, you know, it's, it's absolute nonsense. I mean, I think there are certainly some lines that shouldn't be crossed, but 
you know, this is this is an invention, basically. This stuff is an invention because managers have been standing on the sidelines for years and years and years, and nobody, nobody said managers are a real problem, aren't they? We must crack down on, must crack down on managers. You know what happened when Arsene Wenger said some things to the fourth official? They banned him for a few games. Remember, he said whatever it was to um, yeah. Anthony Your Taylor. Dishonest to your federation. <laughs> uh, or, you know, he told Mike Dean to fuck off because fuck off, you prick, or whatever it was he said to Mike Dean. The thing that all of us would have wanted to say to Mike Dean, and indeed, yeah. to this day, many of us still do want to say to Mike <laughs> Dean. You know, it is just nonsense. So I think maybe Arteta is punished a little more uh, than Klopp, but I don't really view Klopp as... Um, you know, a big problem or, or a, a, an issue that football no. has to solve. Here's one from me. Mm-hmm. David Raya has not been an upgrade on Aaron Ramsdale. I strongly agree. Um, and and that's not because I think Aaron Ramsdale was perfect. I, I think we have simultaneously um, re, rewritten some of Ramsdale's performances in history and also squinted to see it with Raya. I think we have a little bit of that, oh, but look at the left back position he's actually playing and look at how far. There is no question that Mikel wants him doing something that he feels Ramsdale cannot do. And I think to some extent, there's merit to that. I think Raya is doing some things on the pitch that Ramsdale is not as equipped to do. But certain positions have responsibility. Everybody always tells me this with Zinchenko, right? Your first job as a defender is to defend. Mm -hmm. Well, your first job as goalkeeper is to keep goal and to keep goals out. And I, I just don't think Raya is doing a good enough job at his primary job. And, it, you know, it's sort of like the Onana situation. Like, you know, do I think United needed to upgrade on De Gea? They absolutely did. Did they need someone that could play with his feet? Absolutely. I remember playing United last season. And De Gea would just kick it out in a touch. He had no no hope when the ball was at his feet. But Onana's chucked so many goals in for them that ultimately you can't look at how the benef- what the benefits are, because the drawbacks aren't outweighing it. For me to weight Raya's ball playing higher, he needs to perform as a goalkeeper better. And I, that's not to say it can't work. I will say I'm, I'm a bit on the fence about whether it will work. And that's also not to say that Ramsdale was perfect, because for, forget data. Data tells you he wasn't, but your, your mind, your memory should. I can, I can name you the big errors Ramsdale made that cost us games last season. Um, he also saved us games. But to be fair to Raya, can you think of a game where we've needed him to keep out 10 shots? You know, we just, mm. we just have him played that way this season. I, I can't think of a game where Raya was active. And so I think when keepers tend not to be active, their errors are much more memorable. We can all remember Ramsdale saving us a point at Anfield last season. Raya hasn't had to even try a, a performance like that yet. So I think some of this is unfair. But yeah, there's no question in my mind that at, at this point, he has not played well enough to be regarded as as an upgrade. And I would say even more so if we're going to invest the money to keep him at the expense of investing it elsewhere, you have to question if the resources are being allocated well, because there's a lot of money tied up in two keepers. right now. Yeah. I mean, I think the reality is, is that probably Arsenal's plan is that whatever they get for Aaron Ramsdale will buy David Ryan. Therefore, yep. that's a sort of like for like, but currently that is a, an investment, if you like, an IOU that we've got with Brentford that might well preclude something happening in, in January for the sake of 
you know, a goalkeeper who's been six out of ten, six and a half out of ten this season, and Ramsdale was basically the same. And I know what you're saying about you know how we play and what he's uh, capable of on the ball. I think he's settled in a bit more now. It's it's fair to say the first few games, first few weeks were a little bit bit hairy, some moments here and there. But you know, I know what my eyes see. People can point to stats, but I know what my eyes see as well. So. I don't think he has been uh, an upgrade on Ramsdale, which isn't to say he can't become that. But so far, uh, I don't think we've seen that. Um, Here's another one on the manager from John Hossein, who says, Mikel Arteta, with 18 months left, should have his contract extended. Strongly agree. Um, And there's so many layers to why I agree with this. And none of them are, he's perfect. Everything he's done is perfect. That's not my point remotely. Um, Firstly, I think you have to look around at the landscape and say, there are two clubs outperforming us. They have Pep and Klopp, who are probably the two best managers in the world. And nobody else in England is outperforming us the last couple of seasons. And everyone that's trying has been scrabbling around trying to find a manager. United have been doing it for years. Like Aston Villa? (laughs) <laughs> well, Aston Villa, that's a manager we could look at, you know, I'm to replace jo- Mikel Certain. <laughs> I mean, you know, if, if Emery would, would lead Villa for us now. Um, it, you can wind up on that hamster wheel of replacing managers and never find one that fits. Mikel, at a minimum to me, feels like he gets Arsenal. He fits Arsenal at some level. We've invested a lot of money and time and culture change in him. So I don't think we would want to have to start that over. Because I don't think Mikel's the kind of manager you just swap in, swap out. We don't have a structure at Arsenal where managers are fungible. I think the structure is the manager. Now, I may have some issues with that, but it means if we swap him out, we're probably going to go through a couple of hard seasons or at least a hard season of trying to rebuild the structures that that go out with him. Um, I don't see a team that plays better football with us unless you want to count Liverpool and City. I don't see a team that's built their squad better than us, unless you want to count Liverpool and City. And we're in the Champions League as one of probably four clubs that you would say right now are are have a chance to win it. So when I look at when he came in to where we are now, the trajectory has been where I'd want it to be. We have an FA Cup under our belt already, having beaten Chelsea and City on the way to winning it. And I think we're in a very good position now. Unless this season, unless the ass fell out of this season in a way that I can't anticipate, mm. Um, I don't think you want to be in a situation where next season manager contract talk becomes a distraction for what we're trying to achieve. And ultimately what we do know about manager contracts, this is the thing I've never understood. Okay, let's say we give him a three-year extension and he bombs. He's terrible. We're terrible. You sack him. You know what? Like the amount of money I've seen clubs with less money sack managers on bigger wages. (laughs) You know what I mean? So I think tying him up takes away the distraction of his contract from everyone but does not mean you're stuck with him if something goes badly wrong. I just think it makes too much sense not to do that. Yeah, I mean, that's it. You can always fire a manager. It might cost you a few quid, but, you know, in the grand scheme of things, it's maybe, you know, half a half a half decent left back. Can I ask Is, you a question about this too? Sure. Like, Because this gets brought up so often, right? Whether the players down tools, whether the players are playing for the managers. United have been on this, this constant conversational cycle of the players keep sacking managers. The one thing I think you and I would strongly agree with in, in the format is these players seem to want to play for this manager. Declan Rice came to Arsenal, and I think Mikel Arteta is a reason. Like That's worth considering because the time mm-hmm. when I think you really have to change is when the players don't seem to want 
to play for that guy. And I think with the opposite situation in our club right now, I think these players are really invested in him. I, I agree. You know, when you look at the young talent that we've tied down, you know, Saka, Martinelli, Saliba, there's going to be a new contract for Ben White soon. There's going to be a new contract for Tommy Asu soon. Declan Rice has come in, did not want to go anywhere else. I think that's a very strong message about, you know, what players think of the manager, the way he works. And of course, whether or not they can fulfill their own personal ambitions when it comes to titles. He may get us there. He may not. I don't know. But right now, I think we're we're so far down the path with him that I think, you know, he merits the next cycle, if that's what you want to call it. And beyond that, it's like, well, who do you get? Who's out there? I know there's always a manager. There's always a coach. But... Just right now, I just cannot uh, I cannot see that giving him an extension is anything other than the right thing to do. Yeah, and, and just a final point I want to make on this about where I've come from on this so it doesn't come across as just, you know, thoughtless fealty to one man. I feel that had he been sacked on Christmas right before the ML Smith-Rowe Boxing Day miracle, he, w- he could have had no complaints. He came in as, as an untested manager with no experience and a job of this size or in this, in this kind of job, period. And I really think that those were bad times for us and we struggled and I think it took time. Now you can come up with whatever explanation you want. We had to root out the bad seeds or we'd do this, we'd do that. If he had been sacked at that time, I could, I would have been totally behind that decision. But he wasn't. They rolled the dice on him turning it around. We got the Emma Smith Rowe Boxing Day Miracle win over Chelsea that no one saw coming. And since then, I think the trajectory has been pretty positive. So I, you know, it's not that I just, think endless patience with this guy is the answer. But I think right now, and you said, give him the next cycle. I would say, Andrew, it's that we're mid-cycle. Mm, and yeah. that's the problem, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. Saka's just coming into his prime. Martinelli's just coming into his prime. Declan Rice, Odegaard, these are his players. He picked them. They're just coming into their prime. You wouldn't be changing at the end of a cycle. I think you'd be changing mid-cycle, which is a big risk. Fair enough. Okay, here's one from AFC Rye Pie who says, if a clause exists, Arsenal should recall Kieran Tierney from his loan at Real Sociedad. Uh, I mean, do we have a treatment table that needs tending? Like, I don't. I mean, he's struggled to stay fit there too, I believe. I might be wrong about that. He did, have a, been the case. did have a hamstring strain, but he's back now. Um, um, I, I'm going to strongly disagree with this. I just, first of all, I think, what we've built Tierney up to be in our minds is not necessarily the player he's been with us basically after his first season or so. He is a touchline, 4-4-2 kind of fullback, run the touchline, overlap. Maybe you think we should use our fullbacks that way, but Mikel isn't going to. Mm. And if you look at using Kivior there, which hasn't worked, but Tomiyasu there, which has worked a time, and Timber there, what part of what we've tried at left back suggests that Tierney would be the answer? Um, yeah, I just don't, you know, in, in, in the NFL, the, when teams are losing, the backup quarterback is always the most popular guy in town. And I think <laughs> some of that is happening. Uh, if we had Timber, we'd win the title. Or if, you know, if, if we bring Tierney back on loan, or if, you know, if we just gave Emil Smith Rowe chances, because they're all notionally the answer, but we don't know if they're the answer. So we say they're the answer. I, I can't see any world, Andrew, where, Kieran Tierney coming back moves the needle substantially on whether we win the title or not. I don't think it moves the needle. The other thing is I don't think it will happen or it can happen because I don't think that clause is in there. Um, Beyond like 
Real Sociedad saying, well, listen, we've had enough, you can have him back. Mm. I think where it stems from probably, though, is is anxiety over the left-back position because of Zinchenko's form slash injury record. Tommy Asu, of course, away with the Asian Cup. Now, Kivior has had his struggles there, so people would see Tierney as like experienced, can do a job, maybe not the job. You don't want to see him drifting into midfield or anything like that. Absolutely not. But they would say, well, it could be a handy solution. He's a player we own. He knows the club. He knows the league, blah, blah, blah. But I would also disagree with, you know, the contention generally. I just... Can I ask you a question? Yeah. Once upon a time, we had a a right back get injured and Hector Bellerin, who no one knew much about, came in and made the job his and was very good for a couple of seasons. Like, is there not someone we can roll the dice on? Like, uh, the one thing that I I think is somewhat frustrating is, you know, when when the attacks looked a little light, like, is there... And again, I'm probably doing the thing that I accuse other people of, of, of sort of wish casting what someone could be. But you know what? Couldn't Winery come in and do something? I realize he's like he's like nine years old. But like, is there not a fullback in the academy that instead of playing Kivior totally out of position, you can say, hey, you're the next man up. This is your big chance. And much like Hector Bayron or Saka playing left back, we find a player. You know, yeah, we find someone. I don't think there's anyone who can do what Arteta wants his left back to do. I mean, I think there's probably a young player. If you're talking about a traditional fullback, Mm. there might well be, uh, you know, a role for someone like, I think it's uh, Lino Sousa is his name, Portuguese. Mm. And if it was traditional fullback play, I think he could come in and do it. But you look at somebody like Kivior, who has played a lot of football in defensive midfield in his career. He played basically half a season for for Spezia in, in Serie A and is a Polish international. And... Look, center half at left back, center half at full back doesn't always work out as well as Ben White, right? Ben White is kind of um, more the exception than the rule. I know City are doing it with some of their center halves, but they they eventually end up having some issues out there. So center halves uh, in full back positions is difficult enough, but then you ask them to do what Arteta asks Zinchenko to do. And Zinchenko can do it because of how technically accomplished he is and because he's used to playing in those areas of the pitch or even higher up the pitch. Whereas you put a central defender in there, you say, we need you to operate in midfield. And as soon as the ball goes to the opposition and breaks out there, then we need you to be a left back as well. It is a really difficult role, I think even more so for a young player. Um, But I don't don't see Kieran Tierney being able to uh, fulfill that role. Um, So I don't see the point in in bringing him back. Ironically, we're linked with a 17-year-old at Ajax, so it's just kind of like Defender, you know? Well, there you go. There you go. Whether he's the solution for this January or not, we'll we'll have to wait and see. Um, What else do I have here? Okay. NY Gunner says... Neither Ivan Tony nor Victor Ozymen are the attacking reinforcements Arsenal need this season or moving forward. Strongly disagree. Um, so, look, I am not afraid to be wrong in public, as, as is quite evident. We did a scouting video on our Patreon for Ozymen. We did a couple of them. Mm-hmm. And I'll admit, that player was different than what I thought that player would look like. And I think you know, low touch, low involvement, not necessarily the cleanest in his technique, a guy who looked good in the box, finishing chances, but a lot of tap-ins, a lot of running in behind, a lot of headed goals. And I sort of was like, well, I can't see him doing what Gabriel Jesus does. This is a weird fit. But then I thought about it, and I look at games like West Ham, and I look at games like Fulman, it's like, 
Maybe we need someone who's just a, an absolute box destroyer, you know, who, who through his movement in the box, through his occupation of defenders, now they can't focus on Saka as much or Martinelli as much, or he, he finds that opening in a way that maybe Jesus is too willing to drop into midfield and isn't there to do sort of the Lacazette issue. Ivan Tony, similarly, like, you can't tell me that someone who will win a first ball down for our wide players or where we can go a little more direct wouldn't help. Now, whether they are the star replacement for Gabriel Jesus, this is a risk. Manchester United have spent the GDP of a reasonable-sized nation trying to buy attackers. One of them is going back to Dortmund, <laughs> this window on, on loan. One of them has one goal in the league, right? The other one has one goal in a calendar year. <laughs> so it's not. this is not easy to do. Nico Jackson can't finish his dinner. This is a hard position to solve for. And maybe the best thing we've done is not chase guys like Vlaovic and Mudrik to the ends of the earth because they've turned out to not be the answer. So I think you're always in safe territory betting against a big attacking player failing because they, they do that a lot. Mm -hmm. But I think either of those players would solve a deficiency we have. Now with Tony, he's going to be 28. The money being mooted is pretty big. He's coming off eight months not playing the game. I still think we're not trying to win five years from now. We're trying to win now and next season, maybe the season after that. I'd be fine with either of those players. I'm not the one to tell you what the price should be, but I think either of those players improves us in areas where we need to be improved. I would agree with you in that, that if you're looking at your, you know, it's, uh, it's ridiculous to say if you're looking at your bench and you've got Victor Ozyman on it, which is an absurd thing to say because of the price that is being quoted for him. 130 million, whatever it is. Similarly, though, it's an absurd thing to say about Ivan Tony. Well, wouldn't he be better than uh, Eddie and Kedia? Yes. Yes. But do you pay 80 million? In, no. In January, you don't. I don't think you do. I don't think you can. My well, Brent, Brentford might go down. Like, I, I don't think they will. But if they, they can't score goals, they, they're without Embuemo for a couple of months. Like, they need Ivan Tony uh, as much as we do. Well, <laughs> you know, I've said this. I said this elsewhere as maybe on the preview podcast. I, I, I kind of feel like Ivan Tony owes Brentford at this point mm. of the season. You know, given his absence, given the fact that they don't have Embuemo, given the fact they do have a lot of injuries. He's got to come back in and be the main man for them and score goals and get them out of trouble. You know, I, I yeah. understand how he might want to move to Arsenal. Absolutely. I think we can all do that. But, you know, I also feel like I do wonder if a guy who hasn't played since last May is the guy to come in and spark your title challenge because, you know, it can take a while to get back to, to proper fitness after that. Now, I know he... Sometimes a player get injured in May and he's back and everyone goes, oh, he's like a new signing because, you know, he's fresh. He's mm. super fresh. And, you know, that could be the case too. But I, I, every time I think of Tony and what he might bring to the team, there's also like these little alarm bells ringing about what investing in him now might mean for what you could do during the summer. And look, I don't think Arsenal are going to invest in him now. My prediction is that the attacker, the next attacker we get is is not a big name. I I have a feeling they're going to try and scout somebody who can come in and play well now, but develop into something else. Who that is, I've got no idea, but it just strikes me that that, that is probably the, the most effective, not the most effective, but the most realistic way that we have of filling a position given 
Uh, the fact that, as we said earlier, we still have an IOU with Brentford, like we'll take uh, hamburger today and we'll gladly pay you Tuesday kind of vibe with with with, uh, <laughs> with, with David Ray, you know. So there is, there are legitimate concern, concerns, questions, whatever you want to say about how much money we have to spend, and I certainly don't think we've got anywhere near Ozyman money now, and it would be a stretch even in the summer, I reckon. This team scored eighty four goals last season. Um, we should be doing better mm -hmm. with the group we have, let alone what we need to add. Can I throw something at you that I don't yeah. totally understand, though? And I don't want to make this about Eddie and Kedia, but I think we've sort of seen the ceiling of what we are with him. Um, does it surprise you that Havertz hasn't played nine outside of half against City and the, the Community Shield? Because, like, I'm not saying Havertz is a world-class nine, but we're looking at these sort of big, tall guys in Awesome Hen and, and Tony who are good in the air. Havertz is excellent at aerial duels. You could say, well, we're sort of using him almost as a, a striker and what we want him to do with the last action, getting on the end of balls. But when Jesus is not available, the fact that we've started in Kedia rather than Kai is a little surprising to me. And I think if you play Havertz at nine, you can also then say to Saka, you get this game off, we'll play Jesus out wide. Or if you think Martinelli's out of form, you can play Jesus out wide where he's very comfortable operating. So I've been a little surprised at how much we've stuck within Kedia when Jesus hasn't started and we've not really tried... Havertz up yeah, I mean, I'm sort of look. I, I'm, I'm kind of lukewarm on Leandro Trossard in in general, but I would prefer to see him as the nine when Jesus isn't playing rather than Eddie. It's where he's been best for us. I think, I think it. Probably. I think it has. And like, it's no disrespect to Eddie. And, and the the weird thing about him is that like most of his goals come when he starts off the bench, he's not really an effective substitute or an effective goal scorer. He's certainly not in the realms of super sub. Oh, you need a goal? Well, here's the guy to bring on. And there are loads of players out there who've had that kind of track record. He just doesn't. He just really doesn't contribute goals or assists when he comes off the bench. Um, that's something I'd have to look up. Am I surprised that we haven't played Havertz there much? Not really, because we don't have anyone else for the eight. And that's mm. the reality of, of this squad right now, this team, unless you play Declan Rice there, you play Jorginho as the anchor, and you get Havertz up top. And maybe that might be may, uh, the kind of internal solution we have to consider for the second half of the season. Speaking of Jorginho, mm. um, we had one here. I wanted to ask you... Where the fuck is it? Boom, boom, boom. Okay, yeah, it's from Gunnar Works. Arsenal should activate the one-year extension in Jorginho's contract. Oh, God. Um, <clears throat> I'll strongly agree. You know... Strongly, wow. Okay. Yeah, because I think... I don't know what's going to happen with Thomas Party, but I have a hard time believing he'll be here past this season, and you can't rely on him no matter what. I, I think it would be a mistake to rely on him. I think that means we're probably going to have to go for another midfielder, which I think we will do. Um, I know we've been interested in Zuba Mendy, I think, is someone mm -hmm. that Mikel knows previously or from his, his old club, and that's someone we've looked at. Um, there are other players that I think people like better, but the point is I, I think we're linked, and I think we will probably go for another player in that area. I don't know when, but maybe. So Elneny moves out. Party presumably moves out. You have Declan Rice. You have new signing person. Mm -hmm. Jorginho does feel so almost like he's in the coaching group at times, I feel like. And I know we've done that whole thing with, oh, well, well, you know, holding is a 
he's he's in the leadership group, and we've done that with a lot of players. El Nenny is basically like a coach, but I think Jorginho can still play. I think he can play in a in a way that gives us some options. So if you said to me it's going to be Rice plus new guy plus another really deep squad player we buy who's Cedric-y where he's late in his career and he's only coming to earn a paycheck. Like I'd rather that be Jorginho than whoever we roll the dice on. So I, I think it gives us the ability to go push the boat out for one more big central midfield signing while keeping something in reserve that we trust, especially a party and El Nenny are out of the group. Yeah, I, I was going to agree with it, you know, based on that, uh, based on what I expect to happen with El Nenny and, and party. I don't think you can lose all three and of... You know, of the of the three, I think Jorginho, for various reasons, would be uh, my pick of the player I would prefer to stay uh, at the club. So, can can I add one thing to that too? Sure. Which is, it's not like so. Last season we had Shaka, and Shaka played the eight, but he's certainly a player you can use at six. Now that we've switched that to Kai, Kai cannot play in central midfield. That's not a role you're going to give him. So, you know, had this been last season, you'd say, well. You know, we have Shaka who can step into that role. Mm. The new left eight cannot step into that role, which makes it even thinner there, I think. Maybe maybe one of your academy players, you know, I, I don't know what Patino's up to necessarily or, you know, one of those kind of Yeah, things. maybe, maybe. Um, okay, let's do two more very quickly to get us out of here. Chargui says, Arteta should start sweet-talking Michael Olise into an Arsenal move right now if he hasn't started already. No, that's, well... I like the player, but I'm going to strongly disagree. I, what would, how would that work exactly? I mean, um, do we not want another, uh, another exciting, attacking, creative, goal-scoring, oh, wide sorry, player? I, I'm thinking the wrong player. I'm sorry, you're Michael. Thinking of, yes, sorry. Um, you're thinking of Eze. I mind elsewhere for a minute. Uh, yeah, no, I think I think I agree with this. I think I think that's a that's a he, you know right age, right kind of player. I I don't know what it would cost. I mean, the the question I have is. I haven't looked. How safe are Palace at the moment? Um, are they safe? Safe? Not safe. Safe. I mean, nobody's safe. Safe at, at twenty well, I mean, games in. The bottom three teams are pretty bad. They're six off the relegation zone right now. Mm. I mean, call up Crystal Palace. Call up Roy Hodgson. Say, look, we want Olise. We'll uh, give you some money. Here's a little little guy called Reese Nelson. Can I have him uh, as well? Yeah. Do what do you think Olise's level is? Like he's so hard to gauge for me. One of the things I find that's really interesting about him, he like his temperament, you know what I mean? It's just like he'll score a, a wonder goal and then just sort of yeah. stand there like I oh, I really really like him. I think he's just yeah. such a fun player to watch. I, I guess if you have some concerns about consistency or inconsistency, it, it's probably tied to the fact that he's playing for a team like Palace, with all due respect to Palace, if Dan from HLTCO is listening. Uh, I'm just sort of saying that that's usually the case. Um, but I think when he shines, he he really shines. And what he's capable of against good teams is is really very impressive. He's a and fabulous I think player. He really yeah, he, is. He, yeah. He's a fabulous player. And like I think well, – so what role would you give him at Arsenal? Like where would you – Want him in like an an eight type of role? Would you would you give him? What, like I don't know. Kai's I mean, role? look, he can play. I think he can play both sides. He can play left and right. He can play left and right of the attack. I think he's good enough on the ball as well. Definitely to play more centrally. Has mm-hmm. played a bit as a ten. So another versatile attacking player. I mean, if Trossard can play left wing, left eight up front, there's plenty of room for 
Michael Olise to get minutes. So, um, yeah, I think he's a, just a fun player. There, there are a lot of players who are very good in the Premier League, very obviously, but there are not a lot of players who are just fun when they get going. You look at them and you think, oh, man, that's just fucking so exciting to watch. So he's definitely one for me. Um, I would yeah, love 100%. to see him. By, by the way, so I heard the Ollie uh, thing. I had Villa's squad up as something that I was looking at earlier. So I thought Ollie Watkins. Ah, like, okay. How's that going to work? Yeah, that yeah, yeah. yeah. No, that did not work. But no, okay. Ollie say would be great for okay, us for that's sure. Great. Yeah. Okay, final one comes from me. Arsenal will make a significant signing in the January transfer window. Does David Raya count? <laughs> <laughs> no, we've already signed. We've already signed him. Um, I strongly disagree with this. I think we'll bring in a left back, maybe on loan, some kind of defender, maybe on loan. Um, Is that not significant? Think- Could it not be significant, depending on the caliber of the player, or do you think uh, the way significant we're significant to our season, or significant in terms of what people would get excited about? Yes, yes, the second one. So you're still I, I strongly would- disagreeing. I would say don't be excited, to quote a famous man. <laughs> um, we can do things that would not excite you. Uh, yeah, I think I think we will get a defender because we have to. And I think people will moan about it because this manager only signs defenders. But, like, we actually do need one. Mm-hmm. We have a major crisis there. Uh, the C word could be – the C button could be hit <laughs> here Jesus. if we're not careful. Um and obviously, I'm not talking about uh, a right back, not any other C word. But so, no, I, I think we need one. It's unfortunate that we need one, but I think we need one. We probably need one that's a more short-term solution given that we could find ourselves in a glut of those players three months later. For me, it's it's something that has to happen and will happen. But I just don't see this club buying the striker or the forward option they don't want just to get it done in January. We were very, very interested in Caicedo last January. I think maybe we could have gotten that done, but we wanted Rice and we waited for Rice. Um, And I think that was the right move, quite clearly. I don't want to throw this season away, which is why I think we'll get a defender, but I I don't know, Andrew. The only major move we could make is forward, and I don't think that can be done this window. Mm. Maybe for FFP reasons, but almost certainly just for market reasons. Yeah, I think... That's the primary one, is the players that you really want are usually only available in the summer. Um, I do go back to last January, though, and how hard we were pushing for someone like Mudrik and what that says about what the manager wants in his squad, the kind of player, profile of player that we were willing to, to go that far with a guy we knew was really, really raw which has become evident during his time at Chelsea. Uh, you know, I think he's beginning to find his feet a little bit at, at that club and in the Premier League, but uh, it does say something to me about what we want to do. I do think that player still will be more available in the summer than January. And I don't actually expect anything significant to happen in the window in January, but like you and like everyone listening, I'm sure I'm open to a nice surprise. So let's see what happens uh, between now and the end of January. For now, we'll leave it there. Elliot, thank you very much. Thanks, Andrew. Good to talk to you. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Thank you very much indeed to Elliot. You can find him on Twitter. He is at Yankee Gunner. So you can go there, follow him, and immediately block him at Yankee Gunner. And of course, he is the host of the Arsenal Vision podcast, which I'm sure many of you listen to as well. And if you don't, you should. Right. I am going to leave it there for now. There is, of course, a game against Liverpool in the FA Cup on Sunday. We will have a full preview of that game for you over on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash arsblog. Not sure if it'll be Friday afternoon or Saturday morning, but we will have that preview podcast for you in loads of time for the game on Sunday afternoon. For now, take it easy, folks. Thank you so much, as always, for listening, and we will catch you on the next one. Until then, cheers. Bye-bye. Reading an expert football analyst on Twitter.com. Sell Eddie, 50 million. Sell Smith Rowe, 60 million. Loan Reese Nelson with an obligation to buy, 30 million. Sell Aaron Ramsdale, 45 million. Then buy Mbappe, he's out of contract, free transfer. Then bring Jude Bellingham home. Problem solved. Sort it out, Arteta and Edu. Listening to an audio version of that post from the same expert football analyst. Sell Eddie, 50 million. Sell Smith Rowe, 60 million. Loan Riz Nelson with obligation to buy, 30 million. Sell Aaron Ramsdale, 45 million. Then buy on Bopi, out of contract, free transfer. Then bring Jude Bellingham home, problem solved. Sort it out Arteta and Edu.
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.